Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest this week is Ross Dunn, who has recently published a new edition of the travels of Ibn Battuta, and whom we are going to discuss this week. And he's, he's embarking on quite an incredible journey, and especially for the time that they live in. But of course, before we go to go into his journey, I want to know, how did you come about studying the Islamic world? Right. Um, it really started out with an interest in, in uh, Africa, African studies and African history. And... Uh, um, I've always been asking myself how I got interested in that because I um, I come from a very rural part of the western side of New York State, uh, hundreds of miles from New York City, <laughs> and uh, you know that was my upbringing. So uh, my first interest in Africa was was reading a novel about the Mau Mau Rebellion, and. Uh, when I read that, I was like 16 or 17 years old. And uh, I would have to say that, that the book is something of a racist potboiler, but I didn't really understand that at the time. Mm. And I was just fascinated by um, you know, the, the African setting of, of this, this novel. It was, it was called Something of Value. Um, so when I went off to college, I, I just... Uh, was always interested in studying anything about Africa. If I had to write a an essay for a course, I would try to write something about Africa if I could. And uh, there was no program in African history at the university I went to, which was the State University of New York at Albany. Uh, but I was a history major and a French minor, and I took many different history courses None of them African history because it simply wasn't available at the time. And uh, but I told my advisors I wanted to go to graduate school and study African history. And uh, they thought that was a crazy idea because they didn't think Africa was a field at all. Uh, that was part of the academic universe. Well, this was a long time ago. Of course, this was actually in the 1960s when I went off to to uh, college and graduate school. Uh, but I was determined, and so uh, I got into the University of Wisconsin Graduate School, which had really uh, one of the two or three finest African studies programs in, in the country at the time. And uh, so I began a study of African history, and that immediately led me into Islamic studies as well, be naturally, because... Uh, so many millions of Africans are, are Muslims. Um, and uh, part of my, my program 
in that uh, in that studies, which was really African and Islamic studies together, uh, I started uh, a, a program in Arabic study, Arabic language. And in my second year of Arabic language study, uh, I had, by that time, I'd already been introduced to Ibn Battuta. Before I went to graduate school, I didn't know who he was, but I learned who he was quickly, because if you study Africa or the Islamic world in general, you're, you, you run across Ibn Battuta very soon. Mm. Um, so in my Arabic language class, I decided that... Uh, uh, I didn't decide, but with my classmates, we determined that we'd like to to translate uh, parts of the travels of Ibn Battuta from, from Arabic into English, uh, just uh, in the process of, uh, you know, learning the language. Hmm. So that's how I first uh, got involved with Ibn Battuta's, his own narrative in doing this, uh, this translation. Um, so after graduate school, I, I got my degree in African and Islamic studies, and I got a job in uh, at San Diego State University. And I taught there um, for about six years before I came to the idea of writing a book about Ibn Battuta. I was teaching African history, and I was teaching about him in the course. But I also was involved in starting a program in world history uh, at the university, something that is not taught so much in Europe, but uh, a great deal in the uh, core curriculum or general education programs in the United States. World history is often a requirement. So we started a course at San Diego State University in world history. And uh, teaching that for a couple of years, I, I thought, you know, Ibn Battuta illustrates something amazing about the history of the world, and that is the uh, extraordinary extent of the Muslim world uh, in his time, in the 14th century, and that um, the, the trouble with uh, historical studies is that they they have tended to divide the world up into you know separate regions and never study them as if they're connected to one another and that's of course the lesson of world history that they are and were since very early times connected to one another and were interacting in various ways and of course Ibn Battuta was not uh, not someone who limited himself to the he was Arabic speaker, but didn't limit himself to the Arabic speaking world, but traveled all the way across the Eastern Hemisphere and back again, passing through multiple societies, multiple civilizations. He traveled more than back, just back again. Sorry? He traveled more than just back again. He even went to Al-Andalusia after his journey, and as we will come back to, of course, and he traveled to to the world of Timbuktu as Ma and the Mali Empire as well, among, yeah, among others. Right. He came back home for a short time, and then he took off again, <laughs> right, <laughs> to Alaska and to uh, into West Africa. So I, I just got this idea, you know, it would be really interesting to write a book about Ibn Battuta. I wasn't discovering him. I mean, all Muslim scholars knew about him. Africanists all knew about him. And uh, he was even... Uh, 
moving coming into the textbooks in the United States in in Islamic and African history. So um, I wasn't uh, discovering some unknown person. <laughs> it was pretty well known, but nobody had done what I wanted to do, and that was to to write about him, not not to write about his text so much. There were a lot of um, you know philological studies of the text itself. Um, but I wanted to write about the man, hmm. his his biography, but to set it in the in the context of this incredible cosmopolitan world of Islam, which spanned the hemisphere. Uh, I think I thought from the beginning that I, I'd like to write a book that could be, be made into a movie about <laughs> Ibn Battuta. Wouldn't that because, be amazing? We can come back to that later, but he's a yeah. very much more interesting character than Marco Polo. Much more interesting. Mm. And um, of course, we're going to discuss about him now. And I want to begin with before we go into this discuss, because travel in the Islamic world wasn't uncommon, and it wasn't, of course, the only traveler. Ibn Khaldun, as well, is perhaps equally known traveler at this that time. But we, but to travel in the Islamic world. As we spoke about in our episode on Al Andalusia, you needed a receipt at least, if or you needed a degree. As I believe he was a judge, as he, that he was educated as, which made him available to travel. So let's talk about first of all what requ- was required if you wanted to travel throughout the Islamic world. Well, if we look at his particular case uh, he he was a legal scholar and his intention was to travel to make the hajj to make the holy pilgrimage in mecca that was his initial purpose in traveling uh, now broadly people were traveling over long distances especially merchants hmm. across the indian ocean across the sahara desert and so on uh, Ibn Battuta was not a merchant. Um, he he was sometimes interested in mercantile questions, but but he he was not in that category. He was a scholar who uh, wanted to to get to Mecca, and uh, the Quran en- enjoins Muslims to look out for travelers, for wayfarers to show them hospitality, especially if they're going to Mecca. So as a pilgrim, he really had no trouble finding a bed and a, a, a meal wherever he went, simply because he was a wayfarer. It was that, that tradition of hospitality that was uh, so remarkable in the, throughout the Muslim world. I wanted to do a comparison, if you, if you don't mind. Was this common in the Christian world as well, or was, was this unique for the Islamic world, the hospitality at oh, the time? I I, no, I don't think it's unique. Um, I, th- I think it probably operated in the in the Christian world as well. Pe- travelers uh, staying in, uh, uh, you know, uh, commercial way stations or uh, mm. in monasteries or churches uh, where they would uh, be able to get a place to lie down and get a meal it probably would not be terribly hard but i 
I think in the Muslim world, it was quite specifically enjoined by the faith that wayfarers should be uh, treated hospitably. Mm. So it was it was very important to to do that, and uh, uh, I've been treated to that kind of hospitality many times myself in traveling in the in the Muslim world. You know, it's just just expected that you're going to stay for dinner, as it were. So let's um, talk about his harsh and his travel. Continue on his harsh and his travel to Mecca, because I I don't remember exactly where, but it does meet a prophet that he is rather inspired by, that tells him a fortune that he will meet many friends and ma- many meet many of them again on his travel that he will travel f- not just in Mecca, but he will travel further than he ever ever imagined. Right. So he doesn't he meet a for his fortune teller, the fortune teller that he meet on the journey, I believe. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that's that's a, a, a story that he tells about uh, meeting a man in in Egypt who predicted that he would make these travels, and uh, I, I never. Uh, I never gave much attention to, to that story because uh, I think it was something that uh, Ibn Battuta, there's probably some truth to his meeting someone who made these predictions, but uh, I, I think it's a literary trope, really, <laughs> that idea. Mm-hmm. Kind of like with what Caesar, the comparison, kind of what Caesar told about the story about the pirates is kind of to make it something, yeah. Exciting on the journey, right? Just to make it a little bit how yeah. he did, you know, to give it a little bit of uh, excitement. Yeah, I, I, I think probably so. Um, but he does make it to Mecca ev- eventually, and um, but he does, how, he did, it's a hard journey for him to to get there because he he you know he he goes up the Nile Valley. Uh, planning to cross the Red Sea um, directly to uh, the area of, of Mecca um, from across from Egypt to uh, to Arabia, and uh, there's a war going on in that region when he when he gets to the the port on the Egyptian side, and uh, he can't get a ship across. So he goes all the way back down to Cairo. <laughs> And, uh, and goes across the Sinai Peninsula to Damascus and Jerusalem, and and then and finally, uh, you know, in the following year, he he joins a caravan from Damascus to to get to Mecca. Now, I will first just for a second because let's talk about the distances because as we t- talked about, he will travel all the way to China as well. But let's talk about the distance for a second because it is quite even from where it begins. To where to Mecca is quite a distance, and it's not just like we do today. It wasn't just to take an airplane and you there in two hours. It, it took days, if not weeks, to travel or months to travel this distance. For years, yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a long time to get anywhere, and of course, he traveled uh, probably in every conceivable way at the time uh, by horseback and mule and wagon train but also uh and, and camel 
riding camel, but he also uh, he also traveled by sea part of the time. So, uh, was it dangerous to travel to sea, considering the piracy, or was it the same? Was that the more safer journey at the time? Well, his experience uh, shows us that the traveling was never uh, safe for anybody because he was accosted a number of times and he was actually, uh, a ship he was on in the Indian Ocean was attacked and, and boarded by pirates uh, off the southern coast of India. And he tells us that, uh, that you know, that happened and uh, they stripped everybody pretty much of their belongings and even their clothing, but they didn't kill anybody. They just uh, let everybody off and to go on shore. Mm-hmm. So Ivan Batuta, after being uh, robbed by these pirates, he's uh, he, he gets on shore in India, but all he's got on is his pants and shirt. And uh, they really, they stole everything else that he had. So he had to, to start over again. So yeah, it was... Uh, Travel was was ha- was hazardous, and you you wanted to travel uh, in a company of others. You know, when he started out from from Tangier, left home, he was all by himself. At least that's what he says, which I would think would be very dangerous. Uh, but uh, he soon, by the time he gets to uh, Western Algeria, Tlemcen city of Tlemcen, he he meets up with other travelers and he joins them, which was the thing you should have done from the start hmm. was be better to travel in a group and uh, even with a military es- escort if you can get one. Hmm. So instead of what it makes, finally makes it back, it doesn't decide to go home. What makes him continue the journey to eat further east? What, what, what excited him so much about continuing to travel from Mecca and not go home considering he made the pilgrimage he had done his duty to the Islamic tradition. Why doesn't he choose to go home as he probably the original was thinking about? That's a great question. It's one I've been been always struggling with, and I still don't have a a convincing answer mm-hmm. <laughs> as to why he he did that. He you know, after he performed the Hajj in Mecca and visited Medina, uh you know, he decided to travel to 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 Baghdad and uh, then went on up through Iraq and part of Iran and then back to Mecca again. And he never really s- explains to his reader why he made that trip. You know, why he didn't just after he made one pilgrimage go back uh, back home again. I, I think part of it was that he. He was thinking about undertaking more more study, legal study, which he had done already in Damascus and uh, maybe somewhat in Jerusalem and and in Mecca. Um, but I, I think, and, and, and I should also add that he was um, he was a Sufi practitioner, and uh, there was a great interest in on his part and 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 merit in uh, uh seeking out and meeting up with sufi sheikhs with uh sufi holy people uh who had uh, accumulated 
heavy concentration of what they call baraka. Uh, baraka meaning blessing. You know, Barack, Barack Obama, Barack Obama, as we oh. call him. Uh, that that's this fundamentally the same word, Barack. Baraka meaning blessing in Arabic. So, to uh, uh, to receive the blessings of, of of Sufi masters was one of his motivations for travel as well. But I but I think uh, underlying it all was he he was learning that um, in the Muslim world, especially the outer reaches of the Muslim world, the the areas that had more recently uh, been conquered by by Muslims or uh, Muslim society was taking root, that there was a, a lot of career opportunities for people like him there. Uh, because he was an Arabic speaker, he belonged to what, what they would call the race of the prophet, being an Arab. He, you know, he wasn't an Arab, really. He, his family were all uh, Berber descent. But he was, uh, uh, culturally, he he was an Arab Arabic speaking gentleman and whether he knew any of his ancestral Berber languages, I, I don't know. But I think that he, he's looking for probably very early on in, in, in his travels, um, career possibilities and maybe recognizing that uh, rather than go home, he might find uh, greater career possibilities as a legal scholar or as some kind of, of an official uh, mosque official or official in government by uh, venturing to the newer areas of, of, of Islam. And as we will talk about, of course, it does come in handy having a legal education because it does serve as several courts, in, not just in the Muslim world, but in India as well, to the Indian Sultan, among others. And it does, as we will talk about, as I'm sure he does that gets sent by the Sultan to of India to China as the envoy as well. So he does it does come in handy having the education that he has. Yeah, the this Sultan of India was the case of someone who um uh who is who is very interesting and and you know the the, the, the sultans of India, their their ancestors had not been Muslims for very many generations. So they're really, uh, those families were, had had converted to Islam. And, and uh, in India, of course, the, the bulk of the population were not Muslims at all. They were, they were Hindu. But, um, there was a desire on the part of rulers like uh, the one in India, Muhammad ibn Tughluq, to surround themselves with Muslim scholars, with Muslim religious officials, uh, with all Muslims who would lend a, an aura of legitimacy to their court, legitimacy as pious Muslim rulers. Um, so to do that, you have to create Muslim institutions, uh, colleges, universities, 
Muslim mausoleums for the burial of, uh, of rulers. And these are all institutions that um, support Muslim society. And, you know, that's where he found his opportunity, of course, especially in India. You know, he before he went to India, he, he went to East Africa, you know, south of the equator, as far as what is today Tanzania. Mm. And uh, he never says why he made that trip. We, we really don't know. My, but my suspicion was that he was looking for uh, for work. Uh, and, and I think he just didn't find what he was looking for. So he he decided to go back. And we know he was already thinking about going to India. But um, it took him just longer to get there than he had planned. Hmm. So something that he does mention several times in his test is, of course, that when he was little judge for the sultan's court or whatever court he visited, was that he usually would get gifts, rich gifts from this, from these yeah. rulers, and he was quite proud of this that he got so many gifts, and he got so get all these, you know, jewels and precious, precious stuff. That is, and he seems to be quite proud of that that he got all these gifts because he does serve. He seems to be quite important figure for the court. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's. It's in, in Turkey, traveling through Turkey, or what was then Anatolia, that he first began to make a good living. And that was just because he um, he had prestige as an Arabic-speaking uh, alim, alim meaning uh, a, a legal scholar, the literate, educated class. And... Uh, he found that he was treated with great privilege just because of his status as a, a member of the ulama class, the, the learned class. So we, you know, he visits a, a number of different princely courts in Anatolia, Turkish-speaking uh, rulers, and everywhere he goes, he's he's treated very well. He's, <laughs> as you said, he's given many many gifts. Uh, those gifts include uh, enslaved women <laughs> and enslaved boys. I, I don't know how to, what quite to make of that, but um, so Doesn't when he, he end up getting married as well on the journey. Yeah, he yeah he was married s several times, and uh, he had several children. And I, I've often remarked to. My students said, you know, Ibn Battuta finally returned home and uh, he could sit at home back in Morocco and think about all his children growing up across the Eastern Hemisphere, <laughs> of which there were several, but he left them all behind, you know. Left there, them is, with their there, there is this story I remember, but I don't exactly remember where, but he does take the ship and there's... I think his wife is on board another ship or something, but he gets separated from her and her his son, and he never get never get to see them again. I don't remember exactly where this is, but there is the story where this disastrous storm, and he does you know he gets separated from them, never sees them again. Yeah, that 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 was uh, off the Malabar coast in southwestern India when he's was supposed to be going on this uh, mission 
for the Sultan to to China, which uh, comes to an end right there because the uh, of this storm, which uh, the ships are either destroyed or they they simply sail away. Uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a wife; it was a, a concubine, mm. a slave slave girl who, or or probably two or three of them, <laughs> and uh, he was supposed to be on the on the ship, but he was still on shore making uh, arrangements for the accommodation of his slave girls. And, uh, you know, he he didn't go back to Delhi after that because the mission had failed. And uh, I can imagine uh, that if he had gone back to Delhi and the Sultan interviewed him about what happened to the mission, uh, he was... Uh, he would find it hard and the Sultan would ask him, well, why were, why weren't you on the ship that went down or that sailed away? And I don't think he wanted to have to tell the Sultan that he was on shore making arrangements for his, uh, the bedrooms for his slave girls, <laughs> that that's why he, he survived probably. Now let's talk about this time in India for a second, because it's, his description of the sultan is that he was kind of a cruel man, and he, he could be courteous as well, but when he was cruel, he was really cruel, and that's one of the reasons he was scared of going back after losing his wife, because he was scared he would execute him if he found out that his treasures, he was supposed, as we talked about, as an envoy to China, that yeah. he was going to give to the queen, to the, to the leader emperor there. Yeah right. So uh, yeah, the uh, Sultan Ibn Muhammad Ibn Tughluq was a, a fascinating character, way, uh, and we we know as much as we do about him just because of Ibn Battuta. There are some other writings that that talk about him, um, but uh, Ibn Battuta has this uh, you know extensive portrait of the the Sultan, and uh, you know that he could be extraordinarily generous with people. Uh, Ibn Battuta talks about uh, his uh, procession going through the city and his his soldiers uh, tossing gold coins out to the people. That's one of the stories that he, that he, uh, he tells back home. And uh, one person who does write about Ibn Battuta back home. He, he couldn't. He said, oh, that must, that's nonsense that the, the soldiers would be throwing money to the people. But uh, uh, I, can, I can find it, I find it very plausible that he did that. So he could be very generous to people. He was generous to Ibn Battuta. Uh, Ibn Battuta uh, accumulated a lot of debt and uh, he asked the sultan to pay his debts, which the sultan did. Um, and of course, then he lost favor with the sultan because he was uh, discovered to have been in the company with uh, an enemy of the sultan or a man he perceived to be an enemy. And so he uh, he was uh, kept captive in the, in the palace for a while and thought he was going to be executed, but, but he wasn't. Yeah, but the the sultan was a uh, 
he really is coming near the end of the the the, uh, the Delhi Sultanate. It, it lasts some what longer until the coming of the the uh, Mughals. So yeah, he did fell out a favor, but how does he get sent to the envoy from to China? Considering he did, as I spoke about it, but did fell out a favor to the Sultan. Well, he he never tells us why he in particular was chosen. Um, he he, I, I guess the the Sultan decided that he was not terribly culpable of any crime and. Just because he had associated with someone the Sultan didn't like, and so he was let go, and uh, he um, he went into a, a sort of spiritual retreat for a while, Ibn Battuta did, and then uh, the Sultan called him back and appointed him to this uh, mission. But why he was picked, uh, we don't have much of an idea. Uh, you know, you know, we, probably um, Ibn Battuta uh, ballooned his own importance to some extent in Delhi, although he um, he also gives us clues himself that he he wasn't a, a terribly important person. He was he was one legal scholar, one judge among many, and uh, you know he was. Uh, Insofar, he uh, he was an expert at all, and Ibn Battuta was not was not a great legal scholar. We know he wasn't because we we have no evidence that he spent much time, uh, you know, mastering the numerous memorizing indeed numerous mm-hmm. legal texts that would make you a prestigious scholar. Uh, but he you know he got this this job as a judge, um, partly because of the prestige he simply embodied for for being uh, an Arab uh, and from being from the central lands of Islam and, and having uh, and being a member of a particular class of uh, legal scholars. So he gets this job and um, but he, he was uh, insofar he was as he was a legal scholar he was a scholar in a the Malikis. There are four major schools of law right and he was a an authority in uh, the Maliki school, which was not practiced in India, the Hanafi school was more prominent, um, and uh, the uh, the administration was conducted in Farsi, in Persian language, uh, which was, uh, you know, in addition to Arabic, the the major uh, literary and scholarly language in in Islam. I mean, he didn't. He he knew. He claims to have learned some Persian, but I don't think he spoke Persian fluently. So he was not really highly qualified to be a Hanafi judge in a Persian-speaking uh, administrative world. And uh, he says that uh, the he he was able to hire what he calls substitutes, which were like paralegals, I guess, or mm-hmm. you know, clerks, legal clerks who <laughs> who do the work. Uh, and, and probably uh, took care of most of the legal business on his behalf. And we don't have very many examples of cases that he that he prosecuted, a few. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had more power as a judge, really, I think, eventually when he went to the Maldive Islands, because in the Maldive Islands, he also gets a job as a 
as a judge. So it's like, but in Delhi, he's not a, a terribly important person. So why he should be picked for this mission to China, I, uh, I, I that remains something of a mystery. Mm. Now I want to talk about sources of Ibn Battuta because you know, as we mentioned, we do have his own account of his travels in in his life. But do we have any outside sources where he is mentioned that can confirm? What he is talking about is in his travels and mentioned even Batuta. I mean, he's kind of an important person right now, but was he really at the time worthy of being mentioned in historical sources, or was he doing mainly just have his own account to to account write to get draw from his life from? Right, uh, you know that's that's always a good question. Um... The sort, the independent sources on on his existence are very very limited. Um, one of them is uh, is uh, serendipitous. It's uh, it's really lucky that we we have it, and uh, that is, it appears in Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah, his his uh, master's work. Um, Ibn Khaldun was in Fez for a considerable period of time in Morocco. And uh, and he writes almost kind of just coincidentally in his book, the Muqaddimah, that when he was in Fez, this guy shows up named Ibn Battuta. And he's, he claims to have been to India and all these places abroad. Uh, and uh, Ibn Khaldun says, you know, some people don't, uh, they don't believe him. They, they think he's he's a liar, uh, but Ibn Khaldun says, "Well, you know, you uh, you need to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe he did go to all the, all of these places." And it's just one paragraph, and it doesn't tell us much about Ibn Ibn Battuta, but uh, it tells us that he existed, <laughs> hmm. that he wasn't sitting home all those years making all of this up. And I there's. There's other ways that I think we can uh, vouch for the reliability of what he says, not just that. But but uh, Ibn Khaldun at least shows that that he uh, he really there was somebody named Ibn Battuta. And then there is a uh, a, a, it's a, a set of, of biographies. Uh, it's a type of literature in in, in Islam of uh, a compilation of biographies of uh, notable people, like who's who in America or who's who in in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he he uh, there's an article about him there that uh, describes again. It's just very briefly describing that he made these travels and claims to have been to India and came back again. And uh, do you have any sources? In India, that mentions his no. day there. No, uh, there there aren't there are none. I mean, none that have ever been recovered, and uh, and you know that that goes for most of the places that he traveled. Although, um, um, it, Another writer on Ibn Battuta, maybe you've seen his books as well, Tim McIntosh Smith. Mm. 
he's he's written uh, three volumes on uh, on Ibn Battuta. Uh, Tim McIntosh Smith was a, a travel writer and a really serious Arabist, uh, highly fluent in reading and writing um, and speaking Arabic, much more than than I ever came to be. Uh, and Tim, in uh, working with a scholar in in Morocco who had an interest in Ibn Battuta, who's now gone, uh, they discovered um, that a manuscript turned up in Morocco, if I recall, uh, that appears to have been translated by Ibn Battuta when he was in Damascus, uh, which shows that he did do some studies while he was there. Uh, and we, we know it because uh, Ibn Battuta's signature is on this document mm-hmm. as, as a translator of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a letter that uh, has been discovered by uh, a Muslim scholar who was in Andalusia and Morocco. Uh, that's uh, just a uh, sort of ordinary uh, document of a sale of property that involved a uh, sale of property to Ibn Battuta. So you, we don't learn much about him from these things, but uh, they do tell us that he, uh, he probably wasn't making everything up. So do forgive me for drawing a little bit back and forth, but let's go back to after when, when he lost his concubine, not the wife, as you corrected. So yeah. in, according to him, it does decide anyway, regardless, because he's too scared to go back to the sultan after he lost his uh, precious and gifts to the emperor of China. So that's, so why does he choose to embark on a journey to China? And anyway, and he does, he do, because it does seem, according to himself, go on the journey to China. Well, he goes to the Maldive Islands first, and he's, he's there for, for several months. And that's a fascinating story in itself, because he gets involved in a, in a in a plot to overthrow the queen of the Maldive Islands, which doesn't come to anything, but uh, he again he he never tells us very clearly why he decided to continue on to China. And you know there is a good deal of controversy about whether he actually did visit China and um, how much of China he he saw. So. Um, you know, we can we can get into that if if you want. Yes, but, please. Uh, I mean, please do. Um, well, um, when I uh, when I was writing my book, I, I was really uh, I was really undecided, ambivalent about how to treat it because uh, of the you know the criticism. Uh, that he he never really did get to China. Um, I came to the conclusion that he he probably did uh, may well have anyway <laughs> reached the, the southern coast of China, and uh, in my own book, uh, it's in the footnotes of my book, but I wrote quite extensively about this issue. He claims to have gone all the way to Beijing and and. Uh, attended the funeral of the uh, Mongol Khan, the great Khan of, of China. But I think that's, that is nonsense. Um, 
I don't think he ever, I mean, he, he wouldn't have had time in terms of the time scale that he gives us, the chronology that he gives us. And we know that no Mongol ruler died during the period he says he went to his funeral. Um, and uh, his description... And, and again, if, if I may, when we look at the distance and all the mountains, see how they pass, because it's quite a mountainous area getting from India to China as well. It takes quite a while to... It wasn't tunnels or anything. I'm not sure there is today, but, you know, it's he had to climb quite a lot of mountains as well. And, you know, the terrain, there was, weren't as good roads as we have today as well. I don't know the road system there. Again, I don't know the road system is good, if it's good today, but, you know, it's it was quite different roads and the area and it, it was quite different from what you see today i imagine and of course as i mentioned the mountains he had to climb as well probably probably so he it, the distance again it comes up it's quite still even other large distance from delhi to China, even the borders of china um yeah i mean that that's certainly the true but but he was um you know he traveled by sea and uh Traveling by sea between India and China was right. uh, become routine by the 14th century. I mean, really, even much earlier than that. So there are ships going back and forth all the time. Right. I didn't think about the sea, Chinese, of course. There are big Chinese vessels in the ports of southern India that he describes, you know, how big they were and so on. Uh, so getting there uh, from the coast of India to, to China was not much of a problem. But getting from the ports of southern China all the way to Beijing, you know, that's another matter altogether, which you would normally do overland. I mean, China had probably the best transport system anywhere in the world at that time. I'm sure they did in terms of roads and canals, traveling by canal, uh, the Great Canal that connected northern China with southern China. So he, he could have done it, but there's no way he could have done it in the in the time that he allots for having done it. Uh, he uh, even on the southern coast of China, there's um, he describes a, a seeing a, a particular mosque in uh, I forget which city Guangzhou or I forget which city it was in. And uh, one scholar has determined that that mosque had burned down some years before Ibn Battuta mm. arrived in China. So, um, you know, that's that's suspicious. His whole description of China is is very short and, uh, you know, and quite vague. I think he didn't stay very long. He, you know, he, he describes China. And he, he didn't like it. He didn't like being there very much because the population was, not, there weren't very many Muslims to hang out with. And, uh, Oh, you know, the population ate pork all the time and uh, had a lot of habits he didn't like. So he he didn't really want to stay there very long. I, I, I can understand that. So uh, uh, I've, I've given him the benefit of the doubt in taking him to uh, a couple of ports on the South China coast. But uh, the rest of these travels in China, I sincerely doubt. Now, you may not have to blame Ibn Battuta for lying to us it's also a possibility that after he came home and after the Rihla was the the travel book was written 
that other authors took it and added to it. Ooh. They could could have done that. And, you know, saying, well, if Ibn Battuta did not go to China, he should have. And so let's put something in there about Ibn Battuta in China. Uh, we think that that actually is the case. He he claims also to have traveled up the Volga River, deep mm -hmm. into the heart of, of Russia. And uh, most scholars agree that he, he probably didn't do that. And uh, I can, the, the, his description is faulty and it's extremely vague and doesn't make much sense. And uh, he wouldn't have had time to do it. Uh, but but I think um, you have to understand that he was writing, that he's, he's not the actual author of the book. He worked with this young Andalusian scholar named Ibn Juzai who had the literary credentials to do this sort of thing, which Ibn Battuta was not trained that way. So they worked together to write the, the mm. Ritlo. You know, Marco Polo, it was the same. He had a guy named Rusticello who actually was doing the, putting together the manuscript for Marco Polo. So uh, I can imagine Ibn Battuta and Ibn Juzai sitting together and talking about uh, the travels. And... Uh, Ibn Battuta saying, well, you know, I, I would like to have gotten gone up the Volga because there was a Muslim community called Bulgar region uh, up the Volga River where there were a lot of Muslims lived, living, merchants probably mostly. Uh, but I, I didn't have time to go there. And uh, his uh, Ibn Juzai might have said, well, you should have gone there. I mean, that's part of the, the Muslim world. So, uh, you know, let's write something in about that. Maybe he didn't even tell Ibn Battuta he was doing it. Because you have to understand this book was a, a kind of, uh, it was kind of a, of, a, of, a, of a travel account of, of, the, of the Muslim world of the 14th century. And uh, it was supposed to be comprehensive and include all parts of the Muslim world. So I think there may be a couple of places that, Ibn Battuta says he went that he, he didn't go, but they're included because they, Ibn Juzai thought they should be. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this journey home. What Helen mentioned is, I believe his journey altogether from from his home to the coast of China, as we discussed right now, it took around 35 years. Is that right? So let's talk about this journey home. 20, 29 years altogether. This yeah. whole yeah, but the first thing that's us talking about his journey home from from Asia back to the Muslim world. Yeah, he did it pretty fast. Uh, you know, he claims that he you know he took a ship back to uh, southern India, and then caught another ship from there to um, trying to think where he he. I have to look at my own book to remember uh, where he he got off the ship at uh, a. Persian port or uh, or in Arabia, but anyway, he sailed back to the Persian Gulf Arabia area from India, and then uh, went back up to uh, Damascus and, uh, and then quickly to Mecca again and through Cairo. And uh, now he he traveled on land all the way from Morocco to Egypt, but on the way back, he traveled uh, part of the way by by ship, actually on a Genoese ship. And 
so it didn't take so as, as long. So he was he was traveling a lot of the time by vessel, going back home, and uh, he seemed to want to get there as, as soon as he could. And uh, in a way, it's surprising that he made it at all because he you know he went right through um, Syria and Arabia when they were in in Egypt when they were experiencing the Black Death. His mother died of plague. Mm. So, uh, but he he just waltzed right through uh, <laughs> uh, the Middle East and didn't get sick. Apparently, he or at least he he survived the Black Death. Sometimes people did, but he never describes himself as as getting those symptoms. So, so he you know he he made it home fairly quickly. But then once he got home, he he decided to go to Andalusia and. His initial intention in going there was to help fight the jihad, the holy war against um, the Spanish who were uh, assaulting the remaining Muslim cities on the southern coast of of India, particularly Gibraltar. And uh, he didn't actually get into any fighting, but he he went on to Granada and that's where he met Ibn Juzai. Then he came back to Morocco after that, it was a kind of a short trip and not very far. I mean, he just he just had to cross the Strait of Gibraltar, which is a simple matter. Oh. But then he decided to go to Mali. And again, he never tells us exactly why he wanted to do, oh. to do that. But I think he was looking for, uh, you know, a prestigious position again. Uh, or some have argued that he was a spy for the Sultan of Morocco, who, who sent him there to... Uh, oh accumulate information and bring it back he never tells that, us but he could be so something fascinating about his trip to mali is that he is so, so used at this point that he receives like we spoke about he received several gifts from the court several courts that he has worked in but when it comes to the court of mali he is rather insulted by the by the ruler there because he doesn't even receive him at first as a way several days and it doesn't get gifts at all. He had, at the, in the end, he goes and he complains to the, to the I believe it, I'm not sure the title, I believe it's Sultan of Mali, that he goes to complain that he, you, I have, wherever I've been, I've gotten gifts from the rulers that I've served, served with, and you haven't given me anything, and I've been here, I haven't even met you. I had to wait for several days before receiving you. Right, yeah, and then when they bring him a meal, it's a it's a bowl of oatmeal, mm. something like <laughs> that. It's, um, I mean, that that's perhaps one of the most to me. It's one of the perhaps most fascinating parts of of the journey because you know he is so you because it's such a fascinating story story to me. Yeah, it it certainly is, and I, I think you know he. He was a pretty straight laced uh, Muslim scholar of the Maliki school, and uh, he thought that uh, since Islam had been introduced to West Africa from Morocco, that uh, the people of Mali should be upholding the proper standards of. Uh, behavior and moral behavior 
and he's women are walking around uh, naked, <clears throat> partially naked, and women are hanging out with men and sitting around with them and talking who aren't their wives and so on. And uh, I, I think he's he wants to tell his audience when he writes the book later on, you know, that I'm a proper Muslim scholar who, who understands the Morocco's urban standards of behavior. And so naturally, I'm incensed that these people in Mali uh, were not doing that. I think he wants to show his readers that uh, he's different from them in in that respect. His not being treated terribly well, I think maybe part of the reason was that there were there were a lot of Moroccan scholars who were going to Mali, Moroccan merchants, of course, and and scholars as well, who were going back and forth between Morocco and, and Mali. So uh, he may not have stood out as anybody terribly special. You mentioned something about the Delhi Sultan a while ago, and I, I want to bring this up again now that I'm speaking about the Mali Empire. And I'm sure you know what I'm going to talk about because, you know, when you mentioned that he threw gold coins at the street to people that the Sultan, the Sultan of Delhi, it, it reminded me of Mansur Musa on his travel to Mecca, how he, how he broke down the economic system and he threw gold coins everywhere. And it kind of reminded me of his journey on the Hajj from Mali, in a sense. Right. Yeah, so, well, uh, you know how people didn't believe him, but then later, or I, I don't remember the date for Mans Musa, but you know it's kind of a similar story there. How they didn't believe him, but you know as Mans Musa will will do almost exactly the same as what the Sultan of Delhi did. Well, uh, yeah, I I know that. Uh... Mansa Musa did distribute a lot of money, a lot of gold. <laughs> and, you know, um, there's a highly reputable uh, Muslim geographer named uh, Al-Umari, uh, who uh, wrote extensively about, it's one of the main sources of uh, Mansa Musa's travels. And, and he talks about how the uh, the merchants and the bankers were up upset because the, mm. the price of gold fell through the floor in in Cairo because uh, Mansa Musa was distributing so much of it. <laughs> so, but the, in all... source, it, it, the gold fields in West Africa were a major source of, of gold for the, the, the whole of Afro-Eurasia, really. I don't know how much of it ever reached China, probably not much, but uh, certainly India. Mm. But something that's fascinating... I mean, it's fascinating this right word, but he doesn't even, Batuta doesn't seem to be too impressed with the Mali, with his encounter with the Mali Empire. Yeah, Yeah, he he has a little summary, you know, in his book about the Mali Empire, and he he has a number of very nice things to say about the people, and he he says that uh, you know they are many of them are properly pious um but then there are th- other things that that uh, he doesn't like and that is uh women not covering their breasts and not being veiled and what he thought were sort of crazy uh 
ceremonies like people having to prostrate themselves on the ground and cover their heads with dust in the presence of the sultan and uh he, he you know i i think it just it comes back to the fact that he he felt that the people of mali should have been ups, upholding muslim standards in ways that they were not but it's important to understand that the great majority of the uh, people in in west africa at that time were not muslims it was mainly a it was a minority class of merchants and uh, uh the rulers and their their royal courts and uh, their officials and, and scholars they made up the muslim population of west africa at that time they're really uh, the great you know like in india the great majority were hindu in in west africa they they practiced uh, local uh, you know, polytheistic or animistic religions. Hmm. So, well, how long does it stay in the Mali Empire? Because it does leave eventually and go back. As this is, is I believe, his final journey that it partakes. So, what what makes it? When does it leave? How long does it stay? And when does it leave? Go back? Yeah, um, again. That's the kind of thing I don't hold in my mind uh, very, very well after. <laughs> Having written the book uh, a long time ago, uh, do I have a glossary? You know, he was he was there only about a year or so. He wasn't very long, maybe less than that. Uh, you know, to get the exact chronology, I'd have to uh, I'd have to look it up. <laughs> but we're we're talking the in the thirteen early thirteen fifties. So. Of course, that's, I think we're going to run it up there, and it's, as we established, his journey is quite incredible. So, But what would you say is, uh, before going to his legacy, I want to ask about what, how important is even Batutas as a source, and how can we really rely much? I said we are talking about some of this today, but can we rely much on what he says, and how, how important is he as a source in understanding the Islamic world at this point in the 14th century. Yeah, that, that's that's a really great question, and uh, I, I think he's he's immensely important. It's it's not just because he was uh, that he writes about parts of the world that other Muslim scholars wrote about, but that he was an eyewitness. That he's talking about his own experience, like like Alumari has written. Uh, as I mentioned him, one who wrote extensively about the 14th century Muslim world, including Mali. But he never went there. Ibn Battuta went there. And uh, his description of Mali at that time is the only eyewitness account that we have. The same is true for his time in India. We uh, we have other, other sources and uh, some... Uh, Al-Biruni is one who was just a little bit later in time, and he, he was in India. But um, the, for the court of Ibn Tughluq, Ibn Battuta is the only really eyewitness, extensive dis- description we have of that really important period of Indian history. And we can say the same for you know other places that he, he visited as well um the maldive islands especially not not that that's a terribly big place <laughs> uh, 
but but fascinating nonetheless so it, it was they because they had converted to islam that the whole island island archipelago so he's so he's important for his um his descriptions of of places and peoples that uh for which we do have you know other sources um and and that's and the fact that we do helps us believe that Ibn Battuta's accounts were quite accurate. For example, he, you know, he'll describe, uh, you know, years and years after he'd been to a city, say a city in 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 Syria or Iran somewhere, and he'll report the name of who was the who was the governor of that city at the time. We have from independent sources that yeah, that guy was the governor uh, of that city at that time. So there are that corroborate what Ibn Battuta said. Hmm. And again, as we, as we discussed before, that this the amount of miles that he covers in his life in the amount of thirty five years, granted thirty nine, but still is quite far going from Morocco to the coast of china it's even though he did some of both it's still a long freaking way to travel that is especially for the 14th century but you know you know he when he visited china or claims to have visited china assuming that he did in the south coast you know he he met a man there who was from morocco Mm. so um, in a way uh Ibn Battuta's the extent of his travels may not have been all that extraordinary, but he wrote a book about it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you didn't write a book about it, uh, it would never have been reported. You know, in the in the Abbasid period back in the eighth and ninth centuries, uh, uh, Muslim merchants were were traveling all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Chinese coast and back again on the monsoons. In a in a two year period, and also the other way around to Al Andalusia, which is quite far as well from Baghdad to Al Andalusia to exchange scholarly papers and to to learn from each other. So it's quite far distances, both from Baghdad to Al Andalusia and to China. It's maybe China to cross further, but still, it's quite a far distance. And Ibn Battuta met several people in in India who were from India, who were from Egypt, or or even North Africa. So um, it, it was an age in which people were were on the move, and uh, it was a, uh, you know, as I've written, it was a, it was a, the second quarter of the 14th century it was a pretty good time to travel, partly because the the Mongol states were still intact most of that time, uh, and the Delhi Sultanate, the uh, the Moroccan uh, Sultanate, that. Uh, these were reasonably stable places at the time. The Mongols were still ruling China. Uh, and then he comes back home in the middle of the century, in the mid-century. And after that, uh, if you don't mind my language, the, the shit hits the fan, as they say in English. <laughs> and all, all hell breaks loose across the hemisphere, starting with the uh, with the Black Death, and in the wake of that, the collapse of several different regimes uh, across the, the hemisphere. So uh, 
he traveled at the right time when I think the it was sort of the twilight of the Mongol era of stability. And that, that was gone. I, I don't think if he'd been born a generation later, he would have traveled that much. Of course, Ibn Khaldun traveled during the second half of the 14th century, but he didn't go nearly as far. He, he didn't go further east than, uh, than Iraq or Syria, maybe even Syria. And Ibn Khaldun is, of course, an episode of itself, but it's especially what I find fascinating about him, to, to derail a little bit from Ibn Battuta, is... His description when he got the tree of Bruce of the Vikings who were not yet Eastern Orthodox at the time. Well, when Ibn Faldun travels to, you know, tree of Bruce at, at his time and he meets a Viking and he describes the Viking burial ritual, it's one of the most fascinating aspects. You of mean Ibn Fadlan. You mean Ibn yeah. Fadlan? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Not Ibn Khaldun, yeah. No, that, yeah. I, I mess up sometimes, do forgive me. Yeah, even Fadlan, yeah, he, he, uh, just how far north he went, I'm not sure we know, but yeah, yeah, he. So we do have a lot of these accounts of travel. So it wasn't really that unique, if, if you will, as we spoke about in, in that sense, was it? Even Batuta. Say it again. Even Batuta wasn't really, as we spoke about, we got all these travelers. At, at the time, so it wasn't really that unique, but as you mentioned, he didn't write a book about it, which is what made him famous. But um, uh, but how many could actually, like you mentioned, we do have Ibn Khaldun or others, but you know, how how many actually was able to did to write about the travels from, yeah, Ibn Battuta did. And I, I certainly don't want to understate his travels because he, you know, he he not only went east and west, he mm-hmm. also went north and south. I mean, he south of the equator and uh, north into inner Eurasia, what is you know U- Ukraine and Russia, and uh, you know he it's still really highly remarkable uh, what he did, and it's it's hard to know uh, you know what other travelers there may have been who. Uh, undertook similar itineraries, but I can't think there'd be very many who traveled as much as he did. But we don't know because they didn't write books. Mm. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have, have you on. I think we're going to round it up there. Before I go, of course, where can people buy your books? Do you have anything else you want to promote? Anything you're working on that you're going to release soon or social media where people might find you? Well, um, yeah, I'd love to. you. You wrote down this is the copy of my book uh, with the, called "The Adventures of Ibn Battuta," published by the University of California Press, and it's in the third edition. And if I get time, I'll I'll do another edition um, and update it a bit a bit more. You know, I've been uh, <clears throat> I've been involved uh, in uh, three or four potential uh, film projects about Ibn Battuta. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, about well, it's uh, about fifteen years ago now or more that I I made three trips to Morocco as a consultant on a plan to to do a feature film ab- about him, and uh, but they never could come up with uh, all the money that they would need to do it. Um, the king of Morocco's uh, 
one of his organizations provided seed money so that we could have these meetings and talk about it. Some scripts were generated, uh, but it, it, it never came to pass. And uh, it, it's quite a shame I, because he, he, it, he is such a fascinating character that deserves a movie's journey is so, so interesting that it, it uh, would be made, it would make a great historical movie. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, as I say, he's uh, Marco Polo is, is really quite a boring person. I mean, Marco Polo doesn't say much about himself and his life, whereas Ibn Battuta talks about his wives and his slave girls and uh, who he likes and who he doesn't like and uh, all these things that ha happen to him personally um, that is absent from uh, you know Marco Polo's account. And yet we've got, what, 15 movies about Marco mm -hmm. Polo. But that's because he's he's a Westerner, and uh, it's still quite hard to get movies made about Muslims anywhere near Hollywood that don't involve uh, you know terrorists. Hmm. I mean, it's, there's a few characters that come to mind. I mean, Saladin would be make one epic future, for example, among others, who arguably would make a great Hollywood movie. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would like to see it as a TV series, you know, in like 12 parts because mm. his travels were so yeah. complicated and so complex. And when I was working on this this project to develop a film, uh, it was a real problem because they were just leaving out whole areas of his travels because they wanted to produce a, you know, a two and a half hour mm. movie. And, uh, and uh, you know, what, what kind of movie you would produce is also... A uh, question: Do you make Ibn Battuta into an action hero? Do you make him into a uh, sort of an uh, icon of of of, his, of Islam? And uh, I wouldn't have done it either way. You know, I I make him a real human being who has uh, flaws and foibles and uh, things he done did he shouldn't have done. <laughs> it's like getting involved in a in a plot to overthrow a government and. Uh, I'd love to see a movie that highlights those kinds of things, you know, to really show the kind of man he was. I mean, he was, he was probably a very interesting individual, a raconteur, but uh, I don't know. He, he, he was, uh, he was a very human being and he, he presents himself in a way that you really feel like you learn a lot about him. Whereas Marco Polo, you, you don't really know anything. Again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you. This has been That H12. We are available on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram under That H12 and Twitter under That H12. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on iTunes, please consider writing a review. That will help us out a lot. And if you like this episode, please make sure to check out some other episodes that you, we have, you might like some, some of what we have made so far. Please like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.